Welcome to Heard at Heritage. Heard at Heritage features cutting-edge analysis and thought from leading experts in and across the conservative movement, as well as premier events and programming from the Heritage Foundation here in the heart of Washington, D.C., brought straight to you. Hello, my name is Angela Saylor, and I am the Vice President of the Edwin J. Fulner Institute at the Heritage Foundation. On behalf of our President Kay Coles James, I want to welcome you back to our three-part series on bolstering the American story, a legacy of freedom, 1620 and the Mayflower Compact. Again, we are so thrilled to partner with Dr. Eric Patterson and the Religious Freedom Institute as we celebrate the 400th anniversary of the signing of the Mayflower Compact. Part two of our series is titled, The Mayflower Compact and the Foundations of the Rule of Law. To kick us off is Heritage's Executive Vice President, Dr. Kim Holmes. Dr. Holmes uh, has a long-standing career as an executive at the Heritage Foundation. Dr. Holmes previously oversaw the think tank's defense and foreign policy team for more than two decades. As a historian of U.S. political movements and ideology, Dr. Holmes writes about America's place in the world and the changing political landscape. Dr. Holmes was Heritage's Vice President for Foreign and Defense Policy Studies and the director of the Davis Institute for International Studies. There was an exception though, and it was his service uh, during most of the first term of President George W. Bush, where he served as the Assistant Secretary of State for International Organization Affairs. We are so delighted to welcome Dr. Kim Holmes to the stage. Thank you, Angela, for that introduction. It's a real pleasure uh, to be with all of you here today uh, to join us in this second event of uh, our series on the Mayflower Compact. In the first event, we focused on the Mayflower Compact and the idea of religious liberty. This is probably one of the first things that people think of when they think of the Mayflower Compact. But as you will see in the course of the series, the Mayflower Compact had an impact on far more than just religious liberty. In today's event, we and our distinguished guests will talk about the Mayflower Compact, Compact and the foundations of the rule of law. In 1651, the philosopher Thomas Hobbes offered the theory of the social contract. He saw it as a political community in which all of its members submitted themselves to an absolute sovereign in exchange for their security. A generation before Hobbes, however, the pilgrims at Cape Cod had drafted their own social contract. They called it a covenant in the presence of God, whose signatories pledged to themselves not to Thomas Hobbes's Leviathan, but to laws about them that they themselves had written. The Mayflower Compact reaffirmed one of the fundamental ideas of the Magna Carta. 
namely that no political society could flourish without respect for the rule of law. But it went further. It insisted upon the establishment of just and equal laws, laws that would apply without discrimination to all the members of the political community. For the drafters of the Mayflower Compact, their freedom and their security would not depend upon an all-powerful monarch. Instead, it would depend on their ability to rule themselves, to submit themselves to the law for the sake of the common good and also to the laws that they themselves had written. Here at, the, here at the beginning of the American story is the idea of government by the consent and by the governed. That is the idea of self-government. In this, the pilgrims anticipated another generation of Americans, the generations of 1776. We are grateful to have among us today a brilliant scholar to help us understand more the full significance of this remarkable document, how the, how the concepts of freedom and the concept, the concept of equality grew in the soil of religious liberty. Dr. William B. Allen is the Chief Operating Officer of the Center for Urban Renewal and Education. He is the Emeritus Dean of James Madison College and Emeritus Professor of Political Science at Michigan State University. He is a member of the Mackinac Center Board of Scholars, and he has been a member since, since 1995. Dr. Allen is the author of George Washington, America's First Progressive, and Rethinking Uncle Tom, The Political Philosophy of H.B. Stowe. He has edited collections of, the, of uh, such as George Washington, a collection, and the essential anti-federalist. And he has published numerous scholarly articles on political philosophy and American political thought. Join me in welcoming Dr. William Allen. Let us discuss the Mayflower Compact. This is a subject whose importance will never cease. We begin with the obvious, which is to say, the presence of the Mayflower Compact at the headwaters of the development of self-government in the United States. But its presence, rather, in a stream of continuing events is what concerns us. For the Mayflower ship is, of course, not the center of conversation. It is rather the assembled people we should pay attention to, those gathered on the ship, and who, before they disembark at Plymouth, signed their names to the Mayflower Compact, committing themselves to develop a civil polity. When we look at the text of the compact, for that text tells us a great deal about what we should expect. And when we read it carefully, we notice not only, of course, the professions of duty to God, but also loyalty to king and countries. We emphasize countries in the plural, Great Britain, France, Ireland, etc., all of which are represented by, of all people, King James, the Stuart King, whose family was at the center of century-long convulsions precisely over the question of what should be the form of government in Great Britain, and particularly resulting in the wars of Cromwell, followed by the Restoration, followed by the wars of the Stuart succession. All this lay in store while the pilgrims set sail for North America and a way of life in important respects untroubled by these turmoils. They left 
because they could foresee and were already experiencing religious persecutions. They turned their faces away from their country without disclaiming appropriate loyalties and obedience, while nevertheless setting their faces against those past and coming experiences in order to reopen uh, or to open the path to new experiences. Now what is important in thinking about this is to reflect that these pilgrims set sail not from London or Southampton or some other port in England, but from Delft Haven. Effectively, they had relocated there in order to launch on their journey. But in another sense, they were self-exiled in Holland. And so, as they left Holland, they left with this purpose underlined. You see in the bold print just what the Mayflower Compact emphasizes. They shall form a covenant and combine themselves in a civil body politic. This is a consensual moment. All agree in consultation one with another that they will undertake this work to form a civil body politic and how they will form that civil body politic. They will do it by enacting, constituting, and framing just and equal ordinances and laws and offices from time to time as shall be thought most meet and convenient for the general good of the country. Now, this is an ambitious undertaking. And as we consider the text of the Mayflower Compact, we must remind ourselves what has occurred here. We had a foreshadowing long before they were on board the ship. They were already agreed in principle and spirit on this undertaking when they boarded the ship. They received specific instruction. They were sent off by their shepherd. They were going off on their own, essentially sailing into a desert wilderness they thought of as Northern Virginia. They had a charter from the Virginia Company, and that explains, of course, their continuing commitment to the king. But in the process, they had a shepherd, Pastor Robinson, who came on ship to deliver, as it were, his last sermon. He admonished them to pay due attention to a civil constitution founded in consent. In other words, they actually had been assigned the mission to create such a covenant among themselves before even raising the sails on the Mayflower. We see, therefore, that they fulfilled their appointed mission, faithful to the spirit that reflected a genuine understanding of the importance of community as the context in which to develop the principles of self-responsibility. That's a rather tricky formulation, one that we see constantly throughout the process that began with the sailing of the pilgrims and continued to the landing and the subsequent development of the Plymouth Colony, the Massachusetts Bay Colony, and all that surrounded these events. Scarcely a quarter century after they landed, we find them developing in Massachusetts, of course, the body of laws and liberties, in which they again affirm in the context of a much grown community this commitment to civil and constitutional order. Moreover, they committed themselves to expressing it in writing, and we see through the numerous developments taking place that they continually emphasize community. To be sure, when first they landed, they had the model of the early church in mind, and therefore adopted communal practices on the assumption that all were in this together, and all should share alike. But they quickly discovered that unless there were extensive individual responsibility and productivity, there would not be prosperity sufficient to support the community. So they quickly abandoned communism, but did so 
in the name of a prosperous community. Not long thereafter, in 1641, the body of laws and liberties eventuated in a description of the order of the Constitution in the greater Massachusetts and described it positively in comparison with the Constitution left behind in Britain. We observe that while they departed with expressions of loyalty and obedience, they journeyed with a determination to emerge into independence, into self-sufficiency, into conscience. For that is what lay at the bottom of Pastor Robinson's instructions to the pilgrims as they set sail on the Mayflower. They sailed under that immediate relationship with God. Those were the very first words of the Mayflower Compact. But that immediate relationship is the foundation of conscience, and thus a freedom of conscience to which community is absolutely essential, but not sufficient, whether for salvation in the next world or prosperity in this world. The happy combination requires the interaction of individual responsibility answerable to God, which is how we must understand the term conscience and therefore the power of the freedom of conscience, and also the thriving of the community. When such individuals gather together in mutual support, the rule of law is not an abstraction. It is, as it were, a practice, a principle of practice. It is necessary to form a civil body politic necessary to live in obedience to the law, and necessary to do these things in order to secure the pursuit of conscience, which is the obligation to obey God before man. That is the tricky formulation, which is concealed in the expression, every man his own pope. The pilgrims grasped that fundamental claim, but also grasped not every man alone, which is why they affirmed community. In this 400th anniversary of the Mayflower Compact, I submit that what is most important and most valuable for citizens of the United States in the 21st century to remember is that the pilgrims saw no tension, no conflict between the assertion of the rights of conscience and the individual responsibility and ultimate prosperity of the community. There is not a tension, there is a mission. They affirmed that they could build such a polity as would remove any doubt whether there might be tensions, and they succeeded in doing so, both on their own grounds and eventually, of course, as we see in the emergence of the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution, the fulfillment of that ambition in the United States. Finally, we often find scholars, commentators, and observers who look back and ask what the sources of the American founding are, what are or were the intellectual sources, I am among those scholars. I have, as others, of course, poured through the archives and prior publications of philosophers, statesmen, and historians in quest of answers to the very question. But I would submit to you, the sources are not to be found in the so-called intellectual progenitors who are often cited. While it is appropriate to take note that John Locke's works were important, that Montesquieu's works were important, and that many another thinker's work was important, including ancient and classical thinkers. The true intellectual and moral sources of the founding of the United States are identified right there at the beginning in the remarks of Pastor Robinson and in the text of the Mayflower Compact. It is echoed in the writings of Winthrop and Bradford, and ultimately in the expressions of a determination, acting upon the right of conscience to build a community in which individuals will acknowledge responsibilities to God, 
and to their fellow citizens. That is the meaning of the Mayflower Compact. Thank you. Thank you so much, Dr. Allen, for your incredible presentation. I am so sure that many have learned from uh, your scholarship today. As we move on to our next speaker, let's just reflect for a moment. Like you, I love America. And it is so important to renew the past by recovering and advancing the principles that gave birth to the American Revolution and guided the minds of the framers in Philadelphia. Like no other political generation before or since, the founders enlisted the lessons of history to defy history. That is, to demonstrate that the government of the people, by the people, and for the people could succeed, where other political experiments flat out failed. So we must take stock of the founder's remarkable achievement to bring into existence a democratic republic, an empire of liberty built upon the ideas of natural law and natural rights. Without this foundation, American liberty degenerates into license and the rule of law collapses into the rule of men. Dr. James Caesar is here to connect the past to the present through his presentation on civil body politic, the foundation of political liberty and the rule of law. Dr. Caesar is the professor of politics at the University of Virginia, where he has taught since 1976. He has written several books on American politics and political thought, including presidential selection, liberal democracy and political science, and reconstructing America, and finally, nature and history in American political development. I want you to give Dr. Caesar a warm welcome. Thank you, Angela, for the very kind introduction. And I appreciate the opportunity to say a few words today uh, for the Heritage Foundation about the Mayflower Compact. As you likely are aware, there's been much talk recently of an event that occurred 401 years ago, which the New York Times last year presented as constituting America's first and true founding. Known as the 1619 Project, this event focuses on the landing of a Portuguese ship in Virginia in 1619 that sold the first African slaves here, which the Times identifies as the fateful moment that defines the American experience. This much contested idea has regrettably served to divert attention from another anniversary that has traditionally been seen as so important to the formation of America, the landing of the ship, the Mayflower in 1620 in Plymouth, Massachusetts. This event has long been celebrated as the first founding, which is an argument that was first put forward by John Quincy Adams in 1802, and then taken up by Daniel Webster on the 200th year anniversary in 1819, 1820, and it is also to be found, or at least the thesis of it, in one of our most famous books ever written about our tradition, Alexis de Tocqueville's Democracy in America. This book calls the New England settlers our first founders 
and it spends many, many pages discussing what they contributed to the formation of the American character. Let's go back a moment to the period in which this landing took place. Contrary to what so many have thought, there were already in 1620 a good deal of of things taking place on the, uh, the coast of New England with Europeans involved. Jamestown uh, had been settled to the south 13 years early in 1607. St. Augustine to the further south had been established by the Spanish in 1565. And the lost Roanoke Island colony had been established in North Carolina in 1595. At the same time, in New England, without a full settlement, there were traders up and down the coast, active on the shores, and they had encountered many, many Indians, not always in a friendly way. Despite the good relations that grew up initially between the Pilgrim settlers and the local Indians, which is celebrated in our holiday of Thanksgiving, the relations between the natives and the various English settlers that followed were often tense and hostile. All of this culminated a half century later, in 1675 and 1676, in a bloody and brutal war, King's Philip's War, in which about 10% of the male settlers in southern New England were killed. This focus that's given today to the King Philip's War and the outcome that ensued, this uh, focus now hovers today over many historians' treatment of the Plymouth Settlement in 1620, which it depicts as part of a great enterprise for the exploitation of the natives. The landing of the Mayflower in Plymouth was the result of a complete accident, and so too was the impetus for writing the famous document we look at and know today as the Mayflower Compact. In fact, this document was not known by the name of the Mayflower Compact at all until much later in 1793. Before that, it was referred to as an agreement between New Plymouth settlers. The Pilgrims, were a group of highly religious persons in England who did not believe that they could correctly practice Christianity within the state-sanctioned Church of England. Unwilling to follow the law, they fled in 1610 to the Netherlands. At this time, they made an agreement with merchants in London from the New England Northern uh, Virginia Company to establish a colony in the New World which was to be built in the area of the Hudson River up around what is currently New York City. The pilgrims then returned briefly to England and quickly then set sail on the Mayflower to America. The hundred or so passengers on the ship were comprised of both pilgrims and a good number of others, merchants and adventurers who were seeking to settle in the New World. Their two-month voyage brought them to America, but they had been blown off course on the way and found themselves with few provisions now in in November in Cape Cod Bay, well north of the boundary of the Northern Virginia Company. Their plan became to set up a colony right there, but immediately there were difficulties. They were not where they were supposed to be, and friction grew up on the ship between some of the non-pilgrims, 
who were reluctant to settle in this desolate area together with the pilgrims. This fact necessitated a group to draw up a pact or covenant, which set up an arrangement for what the purpose of the colony would be. Except for this accidental event, then, the Mayflower Compact would never have been written. It's a very brief document, which on the most practical level sets out the status of all the persons who would agree to settle in this colony. Looking back, many have seen in this document elements that would foretell how people, not just in this little community in Plymouth, but throughout America would eventually be governed. To be sure, there are some things in the uh, Mayflower Compact that remind us of the uh, Declaration of Independence. In particular, the two share the ideas of a people setting out in advance how they would plan to govern themselves. But rather than straining to show how these two documents fit together, with one leading supposedly inevitably to the other, I would propose considering the relationship between the two of them in a slightly different light. The two documents, the Mayflower Compact and the Declaration, set out rather different purposes. But the Mayflower Compact offers many things that can have perhaps be adopted under our system today, though we are under no strict obligation to do so. The question is whether we think some of the goals set forth in the Mayflower Compact can, with some improvisation, be added to improve and enhance our system today. On the question now of the differences between the Mayflower Compact and the Declaration, the Declaration does not speak in, in, in any way of, uh, of, of the new colony's fidelity to King James, but the Mayflower Compact does. The Declaration is a document of independence. The Mayflower Compact assures a dependence and continuation of, of uh, the new colony on England. The Mayflower Compact sets out explicitly the godly and Christian purpose of the colony. It speaks of the advancement of the Christian faith, whereas the Declaration makes no such explicit commitment. The Mayflower Compact seems to set out a truly democratic system of government, while the Declaration, though it does establish government based on the consent of the government, leaves open the kind of government that Americans would soon establish. And finally, the Mayflower Compact seems to make the purpose of government the pursuit of a collective goal, whereas the Declaration calls for a government that protects our individual rights, and hence our individual goals and our individual purposes. But I'm not sure if the nation today would not do much better than by recalling and showing fidelity to something we find in the Mayflower Compact. Fidelity to the religious spirit, wouldn't we do better to strengthen a commitment to uh, the religious spirit than to follow a, a society today which is becoming more and more secular? And fidelity in the Mayflower Compact to democratic rule, supposedly at the national level, at the uh, local level, rather than to conceive of democracy so much as we do today as merely the act of voting at the national level. And wouldn't we do better to think of our duties and commitments to something greater than ourselves and our own individual rights. In this way, 
we might think of the Mayflower Compact as a great complementary document to the Declaration of Independence, a document that can help make us a stronger and better nation. Thank you, Dr. Caesar. I tell you, you have a way of making a complex issue very easy for one to understand. As we move to our panel discussion, ask yourself, what are you willing to do to preserve freedom? James Madison warned, do not separate text from historical background. He warns, if you do, you will have perverted and subverted the Constitution which can only end in a distorted form of illegitimate government. The pilgrims face the possibility of deep rifts within their community, but the signers of the Mayflower Compact did something almost unheard of in Europe. They mutually agreed to enact just and equal laws to guide them in their new political community. There would be no king among their ranks. Rather, they would submit themselves to the laws that they themselves had written. In this, the Pilgrims offered an early model of American constitutionalism, the rule of law, equal justice, and government by consent of the governed. The Mayflower Compact stands as a rebuke to those who denigrate America's historic commitment to freedom and democracy ideals which were written into the very first pages of American history. Dr. Joe LaConte is the director of the Simon Center for American Studies and the AWC Family Foundation Fellow at the Heritage Foundation. He will moderate our next panel that will make the case for preserving our legacy of freedom. Prior to arriving at the Heritage Foundation, Dr. LaConte held the position of Associate Professor of History at the King's College in New York City, where he taught courses on Western civilization, American foreign policy, and international human rights. He is a scholar on John Locke and the religious influences on the development of the liberal democracy. He is also the author of the New York Times bestseller, a Hobbit, a Wardrobe, and a Great War. Please welcome Dr. Joe LaConte. Well, thank you, Angela, for those very uh, generous uh, remarks, introduction. Welcome back over here. We're in panel two at the Heritage Foundation, this uh, conference on the Mayflower Compact. Uh, I'm Joseph LaConte here, uh, as, as uh, Angela just introduced. And um, we are looking here in panel two, uh, our theme here is the civil body politic, the foundation of political liberty and the rule of law. And I want to introduce here uh, along with us, uh, we've got uh, Carol Swain, Dr. Carol Hi. Swain, joining our little gathering over here. Uh, just a quick little background on Dr. Swain, host of the podcast, Be the People, which sounds like an incredibly useful podcast uh, for this moment, Be the People the author or editor of nine books, one of which, uh, Black Faces, Black Interests, has won three national awards. Another book, The New White Nationalism in America, was nominated for a Pulitzer Prize. She is a former university professor of uh, political science uh, and law at uh, Princeton and uh, Vanderbilt. 
Uh, she was a Nashville mayoral candidate, 2018, 2019. Her opinion pieces have been published widely, the New York Times, CNN Online, the Washington Post, the Wall Street Journal, and she holds a PhD from the University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill. Uh, I'm so glad you could join us, uh, Dr. Swain. Thank you so much. Also, we have Dr. William Allen uh, is with us as well. So we've heard uh, some of his remarks. We've heard remarks from Jim Caesar, and now we want to have a robust discussion about the, the political implications here of the Mayflower Compact, this idea of the rule of law. And if I could just kind of get us out of the gate, perhaps, with a question. You know, the, the, the pilgrims say in this, in this document that they want to form a, quote, civil body politic for our better ordering and preservation. And I want to throw it out to you guys to get a sense of, you know, what do they mean by that, given the context? They're coming, of course, from England. There's already social unrest in the England that they have left just before we get to Charles I and the English Revolution. We're just a couple of years before things really get out of hand over there. So now they hear they are in this new, in this new land, a civil, a civil body politic for our better ordering and preservation. What do you think they had in mind? Uh, Dr. Swain, you want to uh, lead us off on that? Maybe we'll take it over to Dr. Allen. Well, first of all, I would say that they knew human nature really well. And they knew that if you don't have a set of laws, that you get lawlessness. And they, many of them, were Christian believers. And if you read the Bible, it's all about laws. And there is a scripture, I believe it's Jeremiah 17, 19, that the human heart is so wicked, who can know it? And so there was a belief that you had to have a set of rules, guidelines, laws. God, you know, is the ultimate lawgiver. Otherwise, you would be barbaric. And that was what they were trying to avoid. Wow. So that the natural bent, the natural drift was not going to be some uh, some workers paradise. They just left things to go their own way is what you're. They knew that men are not angels. They have to be constrained. And, you know, you just can't will yourself to be good people. There, there has to be some type of guidelines and rules and community standards. Uh, yes. Or you are in a situation where each person does what's right in their own eyes. Dr. Allen, you want to you uh, uh, jump in on that? What they had in mind with this civil body politic? Well, I actually want to jump in and jump back. I'll resume what I so often say in this regard. The beginning is not the Mayflower Compact. The Mayflower Compact is important because that's what eventuated as they were prepared to put foot on land. But they also had to take feet off land. And when they set sail from Delft Haven, of course, they were there from the point of departure. They were given a send off by Pastor Robinson. And that meant they were commissioned so that they set sail with a mission, having been commissioned, having a work to perform. Thus, they were not utopianizers. They were not airy theoretical dreamers. They were people with a very concrete purpose. Going, yes, into a deserted wilderness, wilderness as far as they know, but not going without purpose. So that they had yes. a serene confidence in their maker and in their mission. You might as well have seen them fulfilling the Great Commission, if you mm -hmm. want to think of it in those terms. So they yes. knew who they were. 
Thus, the provisions taken in the Mayflower Compact were merely the means of organizing themselves to do a work which they already were dedicated to. Yes, fascinating, fascinating. What one historian called uh, of those, uh, described those early ventures and errand in the wilderness, right? right. And errand in the wilderness, a real mission and purpose, right? Dr. Swain, you want to uh, way back, way back in on that? I just think it's so interesting, you know, that uh, they had watched uh, what had happened in Europe, and they knew the worst of human nature, and they were people that they were very familiar with the biblical stories and with Israel and with covenants, and so they set out to establish a covenant with the almighty God. And many of them saw America as being the new Israel. And what I find most fascinating yeah. about that is that they had the complete Bible and they knew how harshly God dealt with Israel when Israel strayed. And they thought mm. that they could form a society that would be better. And we know that they failed that the covenant that they sought to make with God was broken very quickly. And New England today is probably the most, quote, progressive part of our country, except for California. So there are exceptions. Yeah. But if you look at, you know, Jonathan Edwards and uh, the people that were part of that era, what they sought to do and what they believe, um, you know, it's just, a nation is so far away from that idea of this covenant. And I think that if you read um, about, you know, some of the people that, that came, they were deeply religious, you know, men and women. Um, and so many of them, they knew fully well what they were trying to do. They also yes. knew what was in human nature in, and in human hearts and what could happen. And I think, um, would we look at today, we see just how far away our nation is from their vision. Yes, yes. I want to pick up that thought in a minute in terms of where, what this means for the here and now, but I do want to unpack this theme of the, the covenant, because it is a fearsome thing to make a covenant with the living God, isn't it? And, and it especially is then a, to... Yes, and a covenant is stronger than a co contract. You know, Daniel Elazar uh, has written about covenants and it's not like a contract like people break contracts all the time and if you believe as some people do that people that uh well founders that they may be in a special relationship or or maybe the uh, in a patriarchy or some that some persons have um the ability to make covenants and agreements that affect generations and so did they have yeah. an authority because they were trying to establish a nation that would affect uh, generations, you know? And so uh, did they break a covenant that they had made with God? Are we suffering consequences as a result yeah. of that? And I realized that when I say this, that if you believe the Bible is a bunch of fairy tales and myths and you're not a person, you know, that believes uh, in um, these kinds of spiritual things, it won't make any sense to you. But for a lot of us, you know, who believe the Bible is the inspired word of God and that their promises and their consequences, generational consequences, uh, you know, we, there's a lot for us to 
you know, th there's a lot of weighty stuff yes. there. When you look at how yes. a nation was founded, how it has evolved, where we are today, where are we headed? Yes, yes, excellent. And and let me take it over to Dr. Allen here in a second. Uh, Dr. Allen, you're kind of reframing this. Even if you're not a person of faith, the task of the historian especially is to enter empathetically into their world and to understand what it is that's motivating them. Dr. Allen, you want to pick up that thought on the covenant and maybe related to this idea of the rule of law, because what I'm really uh, impressed by in the document itself, the language, what they're after is just and equal laws, just and yeah. equal laws. What relationship of their covenant theology, perhaps, Dr. Allen, to this idea of just and equal laws? Certainly, uh, we need to take that question up, but let me preface my remarks first by saying to you that there is no one who isn't a person of faith. There are different <laughs> There's no one who lives without faith. So that the, the great game in life is to get the good faith, the right faith. But having said that, I, I want to uh, remind us once again to place it as much as possible in historical context. So that the civil and uh, body politic being envisioned in the Mayflower Compact, I said, was in fact not the beginning because the beginning was the commission from Delph Haven. But it also was not the end. Within a quarter century, you had the emergence, of course, of the body of liberties in Massachusetts. And you had in the relative time frame also the fundamental orders of Connecticut. There is a, a chain of development here. And what's being evidenced in this chain of development is a conviction that they could deliberately construct the organization of society to suit the mission, which they did not form deliberately which they saw as a calling upon them. So there's the, there's the movement you're looking for. Movement from recognizing that you're called of God to accepting that call in the spirit of obedience. And the spirit of obedience required being deliberate and structuring the society to be able to carry out that call. And now place that in the context of what was happening in the area, in the home from which they had departed. For the next more than a century, really nearly 130 years, it was riven with constant turmoil. You had, of course, the problem with the Stuarts, Charles. That was just the start of it, and shortly after they had left that that began. But that process didn't end until a few years before the French and Indian War, 145 years later. Constant attempts of, of restoration by Stuarts, uh, tensions between yes. high churchmen and Presbyterians, covenanters and non-covenanters, that the England in particular was wrecked by discord. Now, what do you see in the colonies? Yes, you see the emergence of differentiation. You see the growth, for example, of antinomian sects. You see Baptists, you see Quakers, you see others springing up amidst them. But you don't see the wars among them that you're seeing in England in this period. The fact that they were devoted to trying to deliberately structure a peaceful civil order in which there was recognition of moral necessity gave them the strength to develop not evolve, I would never say they evolved, but to develop in a way that strengthened the prospects for the rule of law. Well, that's a fascinating bit of history. Dr. Swain, you look like you want to jump in on that in, in, in response in some way. I want to give you a chance to do that before I frame another question. No, I, I certainly agree uh, with all of that. And so I don't have anything to add there, but um, I was thinking of John Winthrop that he wanted, uh, them to be the shining city on the hill and yes, just sir. how far we have strayed away from that and Massachusetts in particular. 
Yeah, and I think we're going to get to that before we close because, you know, one of our great tasks, it seems to me, as, as educators, as writers, people in think tanks and the academy is we want to help pass on this legacy, this cultural. Yes, we do. Uh, right? And they were, they were on to something, weren't they, these pilgrims? Because there was a diversity even within their ranks. Not everybody on that boat was on the same page theologically, but they're, they're, they're signing on to this covenant with equal laws, equal justice for everybody on board. And I'm still impressed by that. There's a That's diversity right. but, but but to equality. Yeah. Dr. Allen, go ahead. Yeah, I, I want to say, I, I think it's not quite appropriate to say they were all on the same page. Yes, they had differing views about important questions, but every single one of them clung to the right of conscience. And, yes. and the thing that was least and most significantly misunderstood among us is that conscience is the first Christian virtue. It is the principle ultimately of political liberty. And what you saw indicated here was the growth of a civilization based on that fundamental Christian principle, freedom of conscience. And I think what's so important too is, I think what's so important is that they signed on to that compact, whether or not they agreed 100%. And in America, we've had the civil religion where people, you know, may not believe uh, in, uh, you know, the virgin birth and the divinity of Jesus and the, the things that divine Christians believe in, but they value laws. And we look at, um, that's, you know, the, the principles of the Bible that's undergirded uh, the, the various states and what the state constitutions look like yes. and what the U.S. Yes. Constitution, uh, separation of powers, all of the things that they got, you know, from Mo Moses, the ultimate lawgiver, uh, whether or not you were a believer, you bought into the idea of America and what it stood for. And I think that... Yes. You, you can, I think today what is missing is that um, people have reached the point where there's such, it's all about me. It's all about what benefits my group. Uh, there's no sense that there's something bigger than all of us as individuals and that we yeah. have to come together uh, to achieve anything, but to be united as yes. a nation, to build a nation. It can't yeah. be about me and what benefits me. Uh, my individual yes. group, or my family, I yes. have to give up something uh, and for the good of the uh, common, for everyone, for the common good. We've lost sense wow. of that. That's an absolutely splendid point, Dr. Uh, Doctor Swain, because think about it. These pilgrims in that boat, they can't afford tribalism. It would literally no. destroy them as a community. There's just no, there's no margin of error for that, is there? There's no room for tribalism. They're cooked if they go that route. And maybe that's where this issue of conscience, Dr. Allen, I completely agree with you. I, I, I've studied the work of John Locke pretty carefully. And John Locke, who comes after these guys historically, of course, is a great champion of the rights of conscience. He'll influence the founders in a major way. The rights of conscience, you could argue, are front and center in our Bill of Rights and the First Amendment. They, they are driven by this, aren't they? Because this is why yeah. they're getting on the boat in the first place, for the yeah, to right to work. God according to the dictates of conscience, and they form a political community with that as the basis. I'm going to pick up that theme, Dr. Allen. Well, that is precisely the reason. And remember, as we began this discussion talking about the question, what is a civil body politic? We can answer that question by remembering what is the opposite. That's an ecclesiastical body politic. 
So, so the right of conscience we forget is first established among human beings against the claims of priestly authority. It is only after that that it comes to apply to political authority because political authority was always subject to ecclesiastical authority in the development of the West and the rest of the world. So it's when the Christians said to the priest, repeating the words of the apostles in Acts 5.29, I owe to obey God rather than man. That's when the world changed. That's when political liberty was introduced. That's when religious freedom was introduced. That became the basis for the rule of law and not of men. So, so we're talking about a tremendous transformation in all of human prospects that wow. is captured by the expression freedom of conscience. It is not some indulgence of a state of the people. It's quite the opposite. It's the people being placed in the position of the creators of the state and who therefore by definition keep it limited. Wow. That's a beautiful summary, sir. I couldn't improve on it. Dr. Swain, go ahead, jump in. Well, I'm not gonna try to improve on it, but I wanna take us in a, another direction. I hope it's not a rabbit trail, but okay. you think about conscience and fairness and justice and the things that, um, um, that were important to that founding generation. And you look at slavery. In 1619, when the first uh, people, uh, black people came to America in bondage, they were treated as indentured, indentured servants. They were released after seven years. They became the backbone of the free society uh, in America. And they um, were released up until I believe 1640. And then up until 1661, if they converted to Christianity, they were freed. And so uh, that earlier generation was much closer to conscience. They were much closer to God. And so they actually tried to do right by the first people they brought to America in bondage. And some of those slaves became slaveholders themselves. They became very wealthy and they became the backbone of the free black society in America. But think about it. They were released if they converted to Christianity. They were released after seven years, but then the further and further uh, people got away from the Judeo-Christian biblical uh, teachings and roots, they became more about greed. And it was the greed factor that made slavery so horrible. I mean, it, it, was, a, it was a bad institution anyway, but uh, they stopped you know, releasing people. They started splitting up families. They started doing all these horrible things uh, as Christians. Uh, many of them did, but not all of them. And so I think that there's something in the Mayflower Compact that can help us understand uh, the early slaveholders and just how things just went increasingly uh, bad until we ended up with the situation we did. Wow, wow. That's an important, important part of the story, it seems to me. And maybe it's worth saying this, guys, as we're kind of moving toward a close here. Here we are with this amazing document, this very short document, the Mayflower Compact. We see embedded in it this idea of democracy. They're playing a role, self-government, the rule of law. We see things about conscience kind of front and center. They want equal and just laws. Um, and yet it's growing out of their deep religious Christian conviction. And where we are right now as a culture, back to your point, Dr. Swain, is you know, our, our media elite, our educational elite, 
they think that all these wonderful blessings of liberty came completely divorced from, from religious belief, from Christian belief, and that it took the secularization of society to give us democracy. But maybe that's the Mayflower Compact. I'm sorry, I said that's a fairy tale. And uh, it's just so interesting that yeah. they would uh, want to believe that. And you see that they're destroying uh, our liberties and all of the things that we've taken for granted. Uh, it's all about destroying the, the, the principles and values that came from our Judeo-Christian roots and our, our constitution. Yeah. And that's where we yes. are. And that's why we have descended, you know, away from the rule of law and things are worsening in America. And if you look at the black community, you know, the black community thrived coming out of slavery. And if you look at the accomplishments uh, that people were able to uh, achieve under the worst of circumstances. And now we have a yes. situation in America where people seem to be regressing. And it's because they've forgotten God. They've forgotten yes. who they are. They've forgotten their constitution. They've never read the Declaration of Independence. They've not read yep. the Mayflower Compact. Uh, they are historically illiterate and spiritually yes. dead. Yeah, it's a crisis of memory. Uh, Dr. Allen, do you want to maybe give us some closing words? I'll, I'll offer some closing words, but let me give you a chance to weigh in on this, this link between faith and freedom right from the get-go, it seems, at some level with the Mayflower Compact. Uh, let me say there's no improving upon the splendid observations my colleague and friend has just offered us. So, so I'm not going to close, that's the close for us, but I will take the occasion to say I found this conversation illuminating. I found the opportunity of value. I retain my confidence that human beings can do again what they did once before, even if in the interim they lost their way. Wow, wow. Uh, let me just offer this thought here, guys, as we bring it to a close. I want to thank you so much for your contributions here. There's a line from John Locke, the great English philosopher, great champion of, uh, of religious freedom. When he's describing the responsibility that educators have, uh, uh, he's talking about students now, young people embarking on their academic journey as, quote, travelers newly arrived in a strange country of which they know nothing. We should therefore make conscience not to mislead them. Travelers in a strange country, I think part of what we're trying to do here with the Mayflower Compact with this conference and your contribution is to help the next generation understand the past fairly, accurately, with integrity, and from that draw, I think, real strength, moral strength and spiritual strength for the challenges ahead. So I wanna thank you for your contribution. It's been great being with you. Hello, I'm Katie Gorka. Director for Civil Society and the American Dialogue at the Heritage Foundation's Fulner Institute. Thank you for joining us for this second in our series commemorating the 400th anniversary of the Mayflower Compact. As Jim Caesar pointed out, there have been times in our history of renewed interest in the Mayflower Compact. This year, even though the commemorations and celebrations that would have been held in person had to be canceled because of the coronavirus, I think this is still a great time to look back to the Mayflower Compact for inspiration, particularly given how divided and full of tension our country is these days. Professor Caesar said we might reconsider the goals of the Mayflower Compact to improve our situation today. 
and Professor Allen pointed out, in the spirit of the compact, we should think anew of our commitment to community. But importantly, Professor Allen also pointed out, personal responsibility is essential to the thriving of that community. Thank you again for joining us. Please be sure to join us for the third and final part in our series commemorating the 400th anniversary of the Mayflower Compact. Thank you.